welcome back to another episode of Much Language, Such Talk. Today's episode is on language and gender. I'm Marielle, your host, and I use she, they pronouns. Helping me out today is our lovely guest host, Ida Dickerboom, who is currently president of the University of Edinburgh's LGBTQ plus student society, Pride Sock, and is working towards their undergraduate degree in linguistics. Hi, Ida. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little about your work? Um, yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Ida, and I use they, them pronouns. Um, I'm in my final year of my undergraduate degree in linguistics at the University of Edinburgh, and like Mario said, I am also this year's president of PrideSorg, the uni's LGBTQ plus society. So being involved in PrideSorg has been such a rewarding opportunity for me this year because it allowed me to connect more with the queer community at the university and also to take part in some really interesting projects such as the Turn Up for Trans Health protest, which took place in front of the Scottish Parliament just last Friday where we were advocating for better trans healthcare. And for us, last Friday, at time of recording, was April 8th. So it's been amazing to get a chance to do all that in my final year at this university. Also, I'm from Germany, so my native language is German, and a topic I find fascinating is how trans and specifically non-binary issues are addressed in different languages, because it's quite different in German than it is in English which is a topic I hope we can get into more today. And yeah, I'm really excited to be your guest host today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, obviously you were kind of the perfect candidate for this guest guest host. Um, so much of the team is made up of cis women, and so we thought it wise to bring not necessarily them to the table, but people who are you know in the community and are ready to talk about this in a way that is... Um, personal and based on their own experiences, and also to bring in uh, an expert. So joining us today to answer all our questions on language and gender is Joe Pierce. <laughs> Joe Pierce is a PhD researcher at the University of Glasgow. His research looks at gender differences in the production and perception of voice quality in contemporary Scotland from a trans-focused perspective. Welcome, Joe. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, my name's Joe. I'm a PhD student at the University of Glasgow. Uh, and yeah, as Marielle said, I am interested in, in voices and voice quality. Um, and I'm really interested in anything to do with gender and language and voices, um, and especially looking at things from a kind of trans-focused perspective. Perfect. Yeah, your research came super highly recommended by Christian Ilberry here at the University of Edinburgh. So Ooh. yeah, he just dropped your name and was like, yeah, look at this person. Um, oh, that's exciting to hear. <laughs> yeah, no, it's always nice to like have somebody else thinking about you, thinking about your research, right? Yeah. Um, and speaking of, this question actually goes to both of you, Ida and Joe. How did you become interested in linguistics and languages? Um, so I kind of kind of got interested in linguistics because I used to live in France. And so when I lived there, I was kind of friends with a lot of people from different countries. And so uh, a lot of people had different accents. And I kind of noticed that we all started to sound slightly similar to, similar to each other over time. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, but I actually got interested in linguistics specifically kind of by accident because I came to university actually to study English literature. And at Glasgow, you have to take English language for a year if you're doing English literature. And so I took English language, which is kind of 
it's linguistics and English language at Glasgow. It's that one one subject. Um, and yeah, so I took English language because I had to. And then I ended up really, really loving it. And I switched my degree. And yeah, just kind of it grew from there. And here we are, like, seven, eight years later, and I'm still doing linguistics. <laughs> <laughs> I do love how it is kind of an accident. Like, I definitely fell into applied linguistics in the exact same way. So um, we're not alone here. <laughs> what about you, Ida? Um, yeah, I think for me it's actually kind of similar. So it seems to be a common experience because um, I was um, always kind of low-key interested in linguistics just through, like, learning different languages or trying to learn different languages <laughs> in most <laughs> cases. And... Um, but I initially wanted to study psychology, so I applied for like a bunch of psychology courses at different universities in Scotland. And um, then I saw that Edinburgh also offered psychology and linguistics as like a joint honors degree. And I was like, well, linguistics also sounds interesting, so like, why not? And then I ended up liking linguistics way more than psychology and dropped psychology after first year. <laughs> and now here we are. I don't regret it. That's amazing, because just for context for Joe as well, um, the linguistics is philosophy, psychology, and language sciences. Those are all one sort of oh. school. So it's very much we all fell into it um, yeah it's amazing it's interesting how linguistics is kind of put in with all these other departments in different universities like sometimes it's with psychology here it's with like english literature and theology um and like wherever you go it will be kind of put in with a different department uh, yeah. i kind of feel like that's how a lot of people end up getting into it just kind of accidentally because their their linguistics is in a, a school with a different like subject that they were originally interested in <laughs> <laughs> yeah and to, and to be honest just for myself like I'm not actually in a, a linguistics program my program is um, a PhD in education but I'm studying mm. specifically anti-racism and language education and I'm using like linguistic techniques right and so I'm kind of here what's not like tangentially but just kind of as a byproduct of needing linguistics to study language education right? So mm -hmm. language isn't yeah. everything, right? And that's why we do this podcast. And so since you're both involved in queer community and researching from a trans perspective or trans through a trans lens, um, how did you both get started integrating these things into your work? Or I guess to Ida, how do you see these things um, coming into your uh, linguistics program? And what motivates you to do work uh, in these fields? So um, I unfortunately haven't done much research or like work into translinguistics because that unfortunately wasn't really covered much in my course, which I think is kind of sad because like, I mean, I think it was mentioned really briefly, like in sociolinguistics in first year, but it wasn't really like brought up after that. And I just wish there had been like, more focus on it as an area of research so like yeah i haven't been like properly involved in it but i do think like linguistics has kind of given me more of an end to like being involved in like queer and trans activism has given me like more of an awareness of like how much language matters when it comes to um yeah like social justice issues of like any kind basically but like especially when um talking to and about trans people so like how important pronouns are 
and um, yeah, and also studying linguistics has just uh, made me realize just how stupid the argument is that, like, for example, singular they them pronouns aren't grammatical or whatever, because like, what even is grammar? And uh, that's my conclusion from four years of linguistics: what even is grammar? Um, that yeah, like language changes all the time, and like language changes to adapt to people so like society doesn't have to like adapt to language but language changes to like fit society and fit new movements in society so i just don't understand the argument that like um, a certain way of referring to trans people is just wrong like from a linguistic point of view because yeah there's no such thing in linguistics Absolutely. And we'll definitely talk more about that um, in the following questions, just to give a sneak preview to everyone else. What about you, Joe? Yes. So I got interested in it kind of towards the end of my undergrad degree. Um, so I had to do a dissertation and I was kind of allowed to choose what I wanted to do it on. And I kind of had started to think about the way that my, my friends who were also kind of coming out as trans and how, how we sounded, I, I was kind of beginning to be interested in it through that, just kind of listening to my own speech and the speech of other trans people that I was friends with. And I kind of hadn't really quite considered how exactly I would go about looking into trans people's speech um, until I found uh, like a paper about it and I realized, oh, this is actually something I can I can research and that I can do. And so it was really through finding out other people had, had researched this before, I was kind of like, wow, I can actually um, kind of combine this sort of part of myself and also my research and, and look into it more. As for kind of what motivates me to do research in these fields now, as I go through it, I feel like to start with, it was more of a, a kind of academic sort of interest or kind of just that I'd, I'd kind of heard people speaking and I was kind of interested to find out more. Um, but now I think it's more, I've started to think about what it is that I can actually do with this research. So for me, uh, one of the things I'm kind of getting ready to work on, it's kind of the next stage of my research coming up, is that I'm going to be interviewing a small number of trans people about um, their experiences with their voices and what their voices mean to them, as well as looking at um, what their voices are doing in terms of voice quality. And when I think about that, the thing that really motivates me to do it is that I think about the state of trans healthcare in Scotland at the moment, and specifically thinking about um, what's going on with voice therapy and speech therapy. I think we've got fairly kind of limited access to speech and language therapy for trans people in Scotland at the moment. And so what I'd really like from that kind of bit of my research that's coming up is to be able to kind of take that to speech therapists and and talk to them about kind of what why why is it important this to work with trans people get them to kind of understand the experience of of the people that they're working with a little bit more. That feels like super inspiring. And also it, it kind of feels perfect that we've brought the both of you here today because, you know, trans healthcare and healthcare in general is something that I'm very, I suppose, focused on simply just because I'm American and American healthcare is a mess, right? And so I, I've come to this country and it feels really good. And it's only now after like, how long have I been here? Maybe a year and a half that I'm like, oh, oh, I'm seeing the cracks now. I'm seeing the where people are falling through. And unfortunately, those those people are the ones that I hold close to me. Right. They're people in my community who are um, being left behind a little bit. And so I, I think that's really inspiring. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You coming from like an American kind of perspective, because I feel like a 
yeah, healthcare systems are very different. And I guess um, the bits where they fail are, made, are in kind of different places. Yeah. As you mentioned in the introduction, you do research on how people perceive gender. Um, can you tell us more about your research and what have you found so far? Yeah, um, so I'm really interested in voices and yeah, what we're doing with our voices and also how people perceive them. And one thing that I'm really interested in is how people perceive uh, the gender of a voice. So if you're on the phone to someone and you hear just someone's voice on the phone, uh, what parts of their voice kind of tell you about what's going on in terms of gender? And so that's something that's kind of like has a, a probably kind of an obvious relevance for trans linguistics, I suppose, because if you're kind of talking on the phone, uh, sometimes it's quite important for you to be able to pass on the phone. And so I'm quite interested in gender perception. And the thing that I was looking at was something called voice quality, which is basically whether your voice sounds more kind of whispery like this or more kind of creaky like this or any other sort of way that you can imagine someone's voice sounding. So we know already that pitch is really important for how people perceive the gender of a speaker's voice. But I was kind of interested in, in thinking uh, about whether voice quality maybe also contributed to how people perceived the gender of a person when they just heard their voice. And so I basically I got someone to uh, produce a, a breathy voice quality and a creaky voice quality. And then I manipulated the pitch of her voice. So it was kind of so, some of the sentences I made them so that they were kind of edited to be in a more kind of typically masculine sort of pitch range. Um, and then some of them I, I kept in sort of a typically a pitch range that was maybe more typical of a woman's voice. And then I, I kind of played those to people and got them to kind of select how masculine or how feminine they thought her voice sounded and whether they thought that it was a man or a woman speaking uh, or if they just simply couldn't tell. And so what I found with that was that if someone's speaking in a more kind of breathy voice like this, they rated her voice as being more feminine sounding, um, less masculine sounding, and they were more likely to say that they thought it was a woman speaking. And if they heard uh, a creaky voice as well, so a creaky voice like this, um, they were also rating her voice as being less masculine. There was also kind of a, an interesting interaction with what was going on with pitch. So we also know that pitch is really important. So you'd expect that a lower pitch voice, people would be more likely to rate that as being uh, a man speaking or as being kind of more masculine sounding. When we were looking at creaky voice, uh, so creaky voice sounding like this, kind of creaky. Uh, so we'd gotten her to produce a creaky voice. And then I had also edited the pitch of her voice down. Um, and you would kind of expect that at a lower pitch, you'd um, find that someone would rate your voice as sounding more masculine, perhaps, if you expect that men have a, a, lower, a lower pitch than women. One thing that we actually found that was quite interesting was that when we edited the voice of her pitch down uh, so that it was at that kind of low masculine sounding pitch level, if she was also creaky at that low pitch level, people rated her voice as being more likely to be a woman. Ooh, that's interesting. interesting. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, you hadn't yeah. Uh, really considered how like voice quality factors into the perception of gender as well as pitch. So yeah, yeah that's really interesting. How I got interested in that specifically was kind of through trying to make my own voice sound lower. And I, what I kind of found was that if I tried to make my voice sound lower, that sometimes it would sound kind of breathy, the quality of my voice would change. And so that's something that I find quite interesting is that every all of the, the kind of muscles in your neck are all sort of related. And so it's kind of interesting how when you try to do one thing with your voice, something else changes. And trying to keep it all together to try to present as, as 
you know, whatever you want to present is very, I can imagine that's an incredibly complex process that speech and language therapists would absolutely need to know to, uh, you know, take care of, of trans and non-binary patients. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is all very complicated. <laughs> As all things in language. <laughs> is gender and gender performance different in different languages? And what is the relationship between language and gender presentation? So yes, absolutely. One thing that I'm really interested in is pitch. And we actually find in different languages that people do different things in terms of pitch. So in American English, versus Japanese, for example, the kind of typical pitch range for a woman is, is slightly different. So when speaking Japanese, people have, so women will tend to have like a slightly higher sounding voice uh, versus in American English, a slightly lower sounding voice. And the difference between men and women is different in these languages as well. So in American English, the, the difference is slightly smaller uh, but between kind of the pitch of a man and a pitch of a woman uh, than it is in Japanese. There's a kind of a bigger difference between the kind of average pitch of a woman and the average pitch of a man. Um, and that's different between different languages as well. So there's other languages. Uh, there's dialects of Chinese uh, where there's much less difference between the kind of average pitch of a man and a woman as well. And probably even between different accents of English as well. That's, that's really interesting because, so my own sort of gender story, like it is what it is. Everyone has their own sort of, you know, gender story and, and journey and all of that, right? So I started to get the first inklings of um, like whatever non-binary tendrils had latched in my brain while I was living in Japan. And my friends make fun of me for this, but I sound so different speaking Japanese than uh, speaking English. My Japanese is like not good, but when communicating with people in Japan, it absolutely skipped like eight octaves, right? I became the worst anime character you could possibly imagine. Not like purposefully, it was 100% on accident. So my partner, my friends, all of them were like, who are you? You know, anytime I, I was like, konnichiwa, right? Like, and it, it felt so weird, I suppose, like experiencing that in Japan, just because I had to ask myself, and this is something I talked about with my partner and my friends, was like, am I unhappy with or am I discomforted with the label of womanhood in the Japanese context, or am I actually non-binary? And so we, we decided to wait until I was in an English-speaking context again, because that is my native language, right, to see if, you know, if, if it really was just the idea of, like, jose and, and womanhood, or if it's just the whole thing in general, And once I got to Edinburgh, I was like, oh, yeah, it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, I definitely feel like maybe I kind of feel um, my experience of gender differently in different in different contexts, just the same kind of way. You, maybe you notice, notice it more um, in, in certain contexts than others, but then it's kind of still, still always there as the whole thing. Yeah, I think for me as a bilingual person, I also experience my gender differently in English And in German, I, I feel like because German is a more strongly gendered language, I think it's both like more difficult to like assert your identity as a non-binary person, but also like kind of increases gender dysphoria by like constantly being reminded of like your assigned gender or like having to kind of misgender yourself because they're 
isn't really i mean there are some attempts to like make the language more inclusive of non-binary people but nothing that has really like stuck as as it has in english in in english it's just easier to exist as a non-binary person for me at least absolutely yeah i to be microaggressed by your own language at such a constant level must be like really harrowing at times and so it's, I, I it, it can be kind of annoying <laughs> that's you know that's a better word for it okay so we have an, an audience question from instagram actually um the question is does gender affect one's idiolect um because you do that research on something similar joe so on voice quality and vocal fry as a gender marker but is there more research on exactly uh, on how exactly one's own language use is shaped by one's gender? Yes, absolutely. Gender affects all different sort of sorts of parts of the way that we speak, and it's kind of not too much of a surprise that it affects what's going on in terms of our own speech because people have actually looked at what goes on when people are learning to speak as kind of little children, and they've actually found that adults will speak slightly differently to girls and to boys. And so as we're growing up, we're kind of almost taught to speak differently. And then as we kind of get older and older, we kind of want to sound like people that we see ourselves as being similar to. Um, so it just kind of grows from there. So, I mean, the question is almost what parts of language doesn't gender affect? And I think there's very, very little that it doesn't. One uh, particular sound that I really like that gender affects that just kind of blows my mind a little bit when I think about uh, is the sound S. So <laughs> one thing that I am kind of just baffled by, um, and there's loads of research on this, is that men and women tend to pronounce their S's differently. So yeah, in, in English, at least, and also in some other languages as well. So uh, in in English, the way that you make an S sound in your mouth if you're a woman is sometimes slightly further forward and it ends up sounding slightly different. So it's more like S uh, and men tend to make an S sound with their tongue slightly further back in their mouth and it ends up sounding kind of slightly lower sounding, more like S. So it's kind of like S or S. And so, I mean, it's not like an absolute, it's not all women do this and all men do this, but there is this kind of general tendency uh, and it means that a lot of interesting things can actually happen uh, when someone doesn't do what someone's expecting in terms of S. Uh, it kind of changes how someone's perceived your voice a little bit sometimes. And yeah, we have a lot of freedom with S to kind of play around and do lots of interesting things. Yeah, <laughs> I think S is a fascinating one. But yeah, gender affects all aspects of how we speak, basically, even even how we say our S sounds. <laughs> That blows my mind. Yeah. Like, I know the podcast people can't see me, but I'm here, like, in shock, and that's just one sound. What? Yeah. <laughs> an S? I just kind of go around listening to people's S's um, and kind of trying to trying to think, how, how like or how like is it? <laughs> I'm going to start doing that now. Just listen out for people's asses and be like, oh, can you repeat that, please? I didn't hear <laughs> your ass. That's so interesting. I'm so excited. I'm going to show uh, this episode to, to my trans friends and be like, okay, cool. This is how you pass now with just your ass. <laughs> you know, like, this is how. These are your tips and tricks, right? Oh, no. <laughs> If there are markers of masculinity and femininity in language, 
are there markers of other gender dimensions, so like different gender nuances, for example? So um, just just for context, I well not really it's not really context, but I was drafting this question with a trans non-binary friend of mine, because specifically because I was struggling to figure out how to talk about masculinity and femininity in a way that does justice to like you know gender presentation or you know uh, wanting to have a lack of gender presentation at all, and so I was just like gender dimensions, and I sent this question. They were immediately like, ah, yes, send me to the gender dimension. I want to go there. Um, just a small little anecdote before nice. you answer the question. <laughs> I like that gender dimensions. I think gender nuances is also that's a nice term. But yes, absolutely. There's a really like famous study in in sociolinguistics, the study of of language and, and social things, social worlds, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so there's a really famous study in sociolinguistics that's about this uh, woman called Penny Eckert. She went into a high school. Uh, so she's a, a researcher, and she went into this high school, and she looks at the different social groups in the high school, and she spent like ages just kind of hanging out with the the kids there and seeing kind of what they were doing and there was two kind of main like social groups in the school there was one group who were kind of more academically oriented maybe more like middle class high schoolers and they were all kind of interested in sports and like getting to university after they finished school uh, and then there was another kind of main social group called the the burnouts and they were kind of less academically oriented they had different kind of interests and these two different groups kind of dressed differently and they had all these different aspects of just their, their style was different. And that actually went through into to how they spoke as well. So they were using uh, the, the vowels that they used when they, they said words actually sounded slightly different. And there was different gender dimensions in that. So the jock girls and the burnout girls were doing different things in terms of what they were doing with their vowels. Um, and so the, the jock boys and the burnout boys, they were doing different things in terms of their speech as well as in terms of how they dressed and and all these these different things i suppose it's we we want to sort of sound like people that we're similar to um and that goes for gender but also all these other the things in our lives that we orient towards and so all these different sorts of dimensions of gender will kind of <laughs> come together um to produce the, the way that you end up speaking they all, all the nuances and dimensions uh kind of yeah thread together <laughs> sort of um, I, I I don't want to say like folk linguistics but in mainstream discussions right you have all of these named uh varieties of English right you have dialects for regions and you have like things like uh black English or African American English right that are so tied to ethnic practice but then you also have these like gender dimension nuances things that happen among genders as well right and they don't get named as often even though they are so prevalent even though they are so like pervasive mm, yeah right? i i wish we could talk about this more and have names to these things yeah i i suppose i don't know i guess the the reason for kind of like naming something is to make it into make it into a thing and like i suppose i wonder kind of what would happen if we were to start coming up with names for all of these different, um, very, very nuanced, like, ways that people are speaking? I worry that that might end up having kind of, like, negative effects somehow when people started learning about, like, 
uh, a particular way that a small group of people were speaking. Um, but it could also give give people a lot of power, I suppose, as well to be like, oh, we're with like, you know, this this group and we speak this particular way. I don't know. You're right. It's very much like double edged sword kind of kind of stuff. I'm thinking yeah. specifically of like um, like the West Hollywood queer community and stuff and how that sort of voice has been mm. like weaponized, but also given representation as like the gay voice. Right, the gay voice. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so our next question comes from a conversation that I was having with uh, a different friend about gendered terms in English. So uh, they asked me, "How does one navigate gendered terms in English, like actor and actress?" And specifically, they were talking about the YouTuber Philosophy Tube, also known as Abigail Thorne. And so she is a trans woman who acts, so they would say actor, but she's a woman, so they would say actress. But they've also been told that part of feminism is to remove gendered terms, and so actor is then the gender neutral and more appropriate, but you also don't want to misgender her because you're saying actor. And so this back and forth between actor and actress, actor and actress, and then also thespian, right? Like, so how do, basically, like, how do you address terms like this, ones that have, like, a gen, ones that are gendered in English in a way that is feminist, in a way that is socially just? I kind of have two answers to this question. Maybe a, a shorter answer is, I'm not really sure if it, it matters all that much. To me, I think... I think I, I, I would probably use the word actor for everyone. And I think the fact that this is, we're talking about a trans woman who's an actor, I don't know if it's a particularly special case. I think if this was a person you knew and they'd specifically asked you um, to use the word actress, then I mean, of course you would. But my kind of, my longer answer is, I think that this is a very interesting question that kind of goes back to what Ida was saying earlier as well about all of these ways that kind of like sexism is sort of embedded into our language. And I think it's kind of interesting how we end up kind of navigating that. And I think it's interesting that it's kind of, we've sort of started to think that this is somehow a kind of feminist act to make to, to start using the word actor instead of actress when in in other languages they're actually navigating this kind of quite differently so in french historically there's actually been only a masculine word for a lot of professions um and so kind of feminist language activism in french is going kind of in a different direction because instead of needing a, a gender neutral term for a lot of professions so like actor or whatever kind of profession um it's it's happened for a lot of different ones they've just got a masculine word that's sometimes been used gender neutrally but what they're kind of trying to do in french is uh, to introduce uh, the feminine form of words for professions and that's actually quite a, a practical issue as well because it ensures that say if a job is being advertised you're making it clear that the, the job is open to, to men and women when you're advertising that job so yeah i think i'm less concerned for the actual question i just think it's kind of interesting to think about how we navigate all these different ways that sexism has kind of been embedded into our, our languages over time how it's kind of happened differently in different languages and you have to get around that in different ways <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And I think this question is also very interesting coming from a German perspective and even kind of baffling in a way because it's just handled completely differently in Germany. So kind of similar to the French example, I guess. 
because like in German all nouns are gendered, like including nouns referring to people. So um like in English it's just a few isolated cases like yeah, actor and actress, but in German it's just all nouns. And like it used to be that uh, like sort of the standard practice was to just use the masculine um, form to refer to everyone basically. So if you're like addressing a group of people or if you're talking about like a hypothetical person or person whose gender you don't know, you just use the masculine. But then um, at some point in feminists, well, um, I don't know if they were all feminists, but like people started saying that like it wasn't really inclusive of women initially. So then they were like, other forms began to be introduced. So in, instead of like saying dear colleagues, male, um, you would say either like, um, so that would be liebe Kollegen. And then like people either started saying liebe Kolleginnen und Kollegen. So like dear colleagues, female and colleagues, male. But then since that was perceived to be a bit long winded, um, then people started using like forms where like the suffix um, was like separated with a slash or where like the um, first letter of the suffix was capitalized and that then was meant to indicate that like both men and women were being addressed. And but then like um, a while back, people also started saying that this. Uh, really only included men and women but wasn't really like inclusive to other genders and so um the gender star was introduced or well the gender asterisk to be exact but i just think gender star sounds nicer <laughs> um so it's basically just putting an asterisk between like the root and the suffix and that asterisk then includes um other genders as well not just men and women and some people also use a colon instead of an asterisk and um that has has caused quite a lot of debate in Germany and um some people absolutely hate like the gender asterisk and uh yeah, just refuse to use it and also like um hate other people for using it. It's just not fun. Um and I, I feel like the frustrating thing is that many people, even the people who use like the gender neutral form don't really understand what it's about because like in Germany like awareness of non-binary people isn't I mean it's starting to become more of a thing but there's still a lot that people just don't understand about uh, non-binary people and like the wider population it's and that's really different from like English-speaking countries in my experience um, so I feel like it's kind of frustrating to hear people argue about like these topics without really understanding the context because like language is really important obviously but i think you should like start by understanding like the wider issues behind it and then using language to reflect that and not just being well i'm using this asterisk because people tell me to use it or i'm not using this asterisk because i don't like people telling me what to do so yeah, I think it, I, I went off on a pretty long tangent there, and I don't know if it's even relevant to the question anymore. No, it's super super relevant because I was actually thinking of there, there's something that's kind of been like in my heart recently, right? So this this debate, I guess, right? So um, the whole thing about like Latinx, right? That has been turned and turned around again on Twitter for like a really, really long time about Latinx. And I don't really have 
the background or the um, expertise to talk about Latinx. But given my heritage and stuff, there has been a lot of discussion about Philippinex and the issues surrounding Philippinex. The the issue is that um, there's a lot of people from the Philippines who say that Filipino is a gender-neutral term because the language doesn't have gendered nouns in the same way that Spanish does, even though we have the same colonizers. So the Filipino language, like, for example, they don't have a he or she pronoun. They have one pronoun that refers to, like, a person called cha. And so my um, both my parents and my grandparents would mix up he and she all the time, right? Because for them, it's just cha. And Filipino is a gender-neutral term. But the movement to Philippinex, right, a lot of that started in the Asian-American, the Filipino, Philippinex american community, in response to and in solidarity with the Latinx, Latino, Latine community, right? And so the debate is that there are some Filipinos who think like, oh, if you're using X, you're just, you know siding with the colonizers, you're just siding, you're just trying to Americanize everything. Americans think that they're, cent- they're the center of the universe, right? When really, for, for me at least, I use Philippinex because I'm Philippinex diaspora, right? I'm like, my existence is within the American context. And so the way that, the way that you navigate these things absolutely requires like historical context of the language and of, you know, the person that you're speaking to and of the community that you're speaking to. I don't think it's fair for a Filipino to tell me don't use Philippinex, you know, when that speaks better to my identity as a non-binary Philippinex person than Filipino does. Also, the Philippines, the name itself comes from the long dead colonizer in the first place. So I don't know why we're so attached to it. Right? <laughs> you know? So so all of these things really come come together. Not to sort of like conflate uh, race and decolonization and and gender, but you know they're not unrelated. As it's mm-hmm. all it's all pervasive everywhere. Um, that actually leads that's really super interesting. Oh, sorry. Oh no no no, that's fine. Um, I'm glad you find it interesting. It's, for me, it's just like I'm I'm just trying to figure it out for myself. Like oh god, you know how do I address people in my own community, whatever that means, right? How do I talk to the Filipinos here in Edinburgh? Uh, so that actually leads really well to our next question. Um, and Ida, you've said before that uh, it's easier for you to exist in English rather than, than German. And that's some that's a, a sentiment that's been echoed by friends of the podcast who are also native German speakers. And as I've mentioned, there's all these debates about the addition of gender neutral pronouns and the X in other languages. For example, the Latinx thing or Latinequi. If you want to do, you know, X instead of X, um, there's ella in Spanish, ella in French. So what is important to think about when having these conversations in gendered languages? How can non-binary people whose native language doesn't have an established gender neutral person pronoun like they, them, navigate their own gender um, or lack thereof in that language? And that question is to both of you. Yeah, I guess I'll go first because I was just talking about that topic and um, yeah, it's a really interesting question and one that I'm still looking for an answer for for myself. So I guess I don't really have like a proper answer, just some of my own thoughts on the matter. And yeah, I mean, I think it's just kind of difficult to, yeah, like I said, to assert your gender identity in a language that doesn't really have a lot of like terms to allow you to do that. And like, obviously people invent new terms. So like, 
in the same way that like neo pronouns are um, being brought into English for people who feel like they them doesn't really reflect them and um yeah also terms like Latinx and Filipinx are um also being invented in languages such as German they are also like neo pronouns and um yeah I kind of touched on like the gender asterisk thing um earlier so these things are like being brought in but to me at least they don't really feel as natural as they them does in English because like they them has a long history of being used as a singular pronoun like not necessarily to refer to individuals but just to like people whose gender you don't know for example and i'm not saying that like pronouns aren't valid if they don't have like a long history like a I said like language changes all the time and if other people use neo pronouns like both in English or in German that's something I absolutely respect but I feel like for myself it doesn't really feel natural to use so um and also especially in German like none of the neo pronouns I've seen really feel right to me I guess it's kind of difficult because um the German gender pronouns are er for he and sie for she and so unlike in many other languages they have no sounds in common so it's kind of hard to like come up with a pronoun that sounds kind of like uh, he and kind of like she and just sort of fits in there like for example anything swedish has um han for he and hon for she and then they've also introduced hen as like a gender neutral alternative and it just sounds similar to the existing pronouns so i think that probably makes it easier for that to become established but yeah german just doesn't have an established gender neutral pronoun and so some non-binary people in germany like use um, both he and she pronouns or like the equivalent thereof and which again like uh Uh, if people are happy to use those then that's of course great but i don't really connect with like using multiple sets of pronouns it's not really how i like see my gender so like so far in germany i've just stuck with she her pronouns cuz it's unfortunately easier than trying to navigate like around expressing my non-binary identity when there isn't any language that I feel comfortable with to do that um i mean i think i'm not really involved much with the queer community in germany not um, like i'm in scotland so i think if i were more involved um in that community then i would probably try more to find language to express my identity but yeah since i just mostly interact with my family in german at this point it's like every day um they are uh, like at least my parents are supportive of like trans issues but again they're like middle aged and so haven't really grown up with like especially with non-binary people so it's something that's still kind of new to them yeah so i guess my in summary it's complicated <laughs> yeah yeah what about you jo yeah so i think i mean for myself this isn't necessarily a an issue that i think that i have because i do use multiple sets of pronouns and that's so i use he she or they and i quite like when people alternate between them as well so i mean that's something that kind of if there's no they alternating between he and she is also you know fine for me um i'm yeah comfortable with those 
so it's not something that I kind of face personally, but I think, yeah, it is definitely a, like a, an issue that a lot of people face. But I mean, in English, not all non-binary people use they. And so there are, I suppose, some options for people in that respect. They doesn't have to be kind of the only gender neutral pronoun. I suppose we can, yeah, what you were saying about, yeah, there are, I suppose, options in terms of neo pronouns, but it is, it is difficult if those don't speak to you. Yeah. And then I suppose as well with some languages, you're going to have to navigate as well, not only gendered pronouns, but also gendered endings on words. And then as well, uh, so in languages like French, you're putting gendered endings on words when you're referring to yourself all the time. So it becomes, I guess, more difficult in that respect that you have to be gendering yourself constantly. Um, so it's maybe if, if you are using something that doesn't quite, quite speak to you, then it's, it's not, not going to be maybe great for you. It is a difficult thing to, to navigate. And I suppose I don't think I can really give any answers or solutions to anyone. Just I can only really say what it is that I do. No, I mean, that's that's fine because this is an ongoing thing, right? This is all something that we're working on together, um, you know, in our little queer community. Something that you said, Ida, that really, like, uh, struck me was, for context, Ida and I worked on an event a couple of Fridays ago. We ran a panel with three non-binary language educators, you know, just asking them questions about, you know, their teaching practice. And one of them is isolated in the German countryside, and you could tell that there was so much pain in their voice. You know, there's so much going on with not being attached to a community that is necessarily supportive, you know, and, and is willing to work to find these neo-pronouns together, to find a pronoun that works in the historical and geographical context of, you know, wherever wherever we are. In, in contrast with the other two panelists, one of, them, one of whom was based here in Edinburgh, the other is based in um, America, and you could just see the, like, queer joy in, you know, talking about their support systems and talking about all the friends that they have who use, the like, they run the gamut of different pronouns, of different sets of pronouns, you know, whether they're, you know, agender or gender fluid or any other sort of gender flavor that isn't necessarily binary, as uh, one of my friends put it. You have gender star, gender dimension, and gender flavor. Nice. So, you know, this is this is something that, you know, we all work with together, I think. Right? Or we should, at least. Mm. Yeah. 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 I think it's good to, like, consider the perspectives of people from other countries, from other cultures, with different native languages, because it's just, it's so different often to what it's like in English, so like even the question like what are your pronouns is something I kind of have to answer with the caveat of my pronouns in English are they them, but in my native language they are not because they don't exist. So it's, uh, yeah, I feel like it's just important to acknowledge that people from different countries have like vastly different experiences when it comes to gender. Yeah, and I think the three of us here, especially because we come from different backgrounds, because we all have different ways that we approach our own individual genders and the way that we approach, you know, our, our different communities, it, this discussions like these are really important to have. So MLST was started with the goal of outreach, of bridging academic research with community and advocating for linguistic justice. And in the spirit of that, how can linguists advocate for the LGBTQ plus community in their research? 
I think that's a really like great goal that you have in mind with starting the podcast. And yeah, I think one thing is definitely kind of, so there's a lot of research really going on with members of the LGBTQ plus community. I think because for a long time there, there wasn't much research going on. And now there's kind of, I suppose, almost, almost a boom in people kind of being interested in the community and what we're doing in terms of language. But, um, I think definitely conducting research but I think uh, it's important to kind of when you're conducting research to think about how that research is actually going to affect members of the community and think about if if someone who was involved in this study was to find out, OK, what how have I written this up? What have the results of this been? How, how would they feel if they found out how they were represented in the research? And I think that's kind of yeah important to to kind of keep your participants, I suppose, at the heart of the research. And I think as well, for linguists who aren't doing uh, research explicitly with the LGBTQ plus community, there's still ways that you can kind of support the community when you're doing your research that's not related to LGBTQ plus people or issues. One thing that you can do is if you're collecting information about gender or sexuality as part of your study, is maybe just to have a think about what exactly is it that you want to do with that information? Like, why are you collecting information on on gender? What are the things that you're expecting to find in terms of gender? And maybe what would happen if you were to get trans non-binary participants in your study? Because even if you're not explicitly looking for them, you're likely to to get trans and non-binary participants as part of your study. So have a think about yeah, how how are those participants actually going to be represented in your study? Are you going to be just categorizing uh, your participants as male and female? Um, and is there maybe another way that you can go about it that might be be better for representing your participants, but also maybe that might uh, be more appropriate to your the questions that you're asking in your study too? I think as well... Um, so one thing as well that researchers who are cis or straight who are really interested in, in working on issues uh, to do with the LGBTQ plus community and language, one thing that they could maybe consider doing is to work on subjects such as uh, like working on transphobic language or homophobic language that might be kind of exhausting for members of the community to focus on. So things like, I don't know, I've been to some really great talks on things like uh, like toxic masculinity on Reddit and just the, the ways that kind of like homophobic language works and I think that research is really important but I can also see that it might be yeah exhausting to do that as a as a gay person or a trans person to kind of work on the language of, of homophobia and transphobia so that's just kind of a, another thing uh, that, that researchers who are interested in in working on LGBTQ plus language could do. That's so that's so cool I, I love all of these like considerations that you're um, giving to to researchers for free this is how we how we work together because you know when we when we move towards you know sexual and gender liberation right that doesn't just benefit the queer community it benefits everybody thank you so much joe and ida and all of you gender stars with your gender flavors traveling your different gender dimensions thank you all of you for joining us in our discussion on language and gender i've learned a lot today and i hope you out there have as well to learn more about Joe's work, you can follow him at twitter.com slash underscore J-O underscore P-E-A-R-C-E. And to keep up to date with Pride Sock or Turn Up for Trans Health, you can check out their Facebook page, Pride Sock's Facebook page at PrideSockED, or Instagram at Pride.Sock, and Turn Up for Trans Health on Facebook and Instagram as well. 
Thank you so much for joining us again. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and... Au revoir. Danke fürs Zuhören. Paka! Paka!